Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman. I am so thrilled to have back Dr. Stephanie Carlson, who is one of the most renowned professors of developmental psychology. She's at the University of Minnesota. She has changed our understanding of how children develop their executive function skills. And one of the mechanisms we're going to be talking about today is autonomy and autonomy supportive parenting. So This episode is targeting younger children. Those of you who have younger children will really benefit, but it matters for everybody because these kinds of conversations continue to reflect parenting with intention that support your children's growing autonomy, which is important throughout their childhood. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate. In fact, I urge you to write a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps highlight the podcast. And don't forget, for more articles and interactive conversations, sign up for DrAliza.Bulletin.com. So will you define autonomy and autonomy-supportive parenting for us? Sure. So autonomy, literally in Latin, it means self-rule. So it's governing oneself and having sort of being the ruler of oneself, um, the boss of oneself. And autonomy is uh, something that all individuals value to to one degree or another, and all individuals need to thrive to some degree or another. Now, there are cultural differences in this that we can talk about, but autonomy just literally means self-rule. So it's having a sense of self, sense of agency, and uh, kind of being your own boss. And autonomy supportive parenting is when parents rear children in a way that allows them to uh, express their autonomy. So to have some say in their own activities, in their own bedtimes, uh, when they're older, things like that. So parenting that allows children to have some options and to rule themselves in addition to all of the external ruling that happens from families necessarily. So when parents are thinking about this, broadly speaking, what are some of the associations between children who have autonomy supportive parents and their later success? Success is a terrible word because I feel like it's filled with values that may or may not align with someone listening, but let's go with the 
typical markers that we think of as positive outcomes. So autonomy supportive parenting is uh, associated with a host of positive outcomes and uh, including school achievement and greater sort of independence later in life. And we think that this largely happens through executive function skills. So the extent to which it's the autonomy supportive parenting, one of the positive side effects that that has is helping to support young children's developing executive function skills. So these are their um, neurocognitive brain-based self-control skills. And when kids get opportunities to practice these skills, like by being given opportunities to make choices and to have a say in things and to be um, allowed to try things on their own and to fail and to try again, all of those opportunities that are afforded by autonomy supportive parenting styles give kids more opportunities to build those executive function skills, which in turn uh, support a host of positive outcomes, such as school achievement, even health, wealth, and well-being later in life. What are some of the ways that a parent can distinguish between autonomy support and, I don't want to use the word neglect, or even benign neglect, except that I do think that the benign neglect is like a yuckier way of talking about that. But I think we've all seen parents who want to do everything for their child, even if their child is already capable of doing it, whether it's a baby feeding themselves versus being fed when they're capable of both, even like thinking of a baby holding a bottle when they can versus a parent who is still feeding them the bottle, even though they know how to, or making lunch when your child is 11 years old and knows how to pack a lunch, which part of that, how can a parent distinguish between being a nurturing parent and supporting autonomy? Right. So there are several different aspects of parenting that are studied um, in research and autonomy support is one of them, but another really important one is, is warmth and sensitivity. And, you know, of course that also is really important for development and they they are sort of complementary sets of, of parenting skills. So it's not saying, you know, let go of the nurturing warmth and sensitivity, but complementing that with these opportunities for your child to, to develop the, that agency and autonomy. So for example, with a, you know, a child who's just learning how to walk, you do have to let go of their hand sometimes. Yeah. You know, eventually you do have to let go of their hand and sort of take the risk that they're going to fall. But what we do is we like sort of pad the environment so that, you know, when they do inevitably fall, it's not going to be totally injurious. Right. And starting to, as, as children, you know, at any age, start to master certain skills, letting go a little bit and letting them try those things on their own. And, uh, you know, I remember, and I probably told you about this the last time we talked about this, but when I was trying to teach my daughter how to tie her shoes, she, she was really determined to figure this out. And she would swat my hand away if I would try to help her do it. But sometimes we were late for preschool. And, you know, I was needing to get to work and needing to get her there on, and, and we just didn't have time for, you know, all of this autonomy support. And so, you know, I remember that feeling of frustration, like, I really want to support your autonomy right now, but we just need to get, to I got to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go. And yeah. So, I mean, and I think 
there's an element of, especially in, in typical American cultural or sort of Western weird cultural parenting, we think of self-reliance. So we've, we've all been sort of instilled with this Emersonian idea of self-reliance and, and it's really important to develop that in, in our, in our offspring. And it is in this culture. And I, that was kind of my motto also in my own parenting was like (laughs) self-reliance. You're going to have to kind of figure this out. But you do, it is important to kind of complement that with, with the sensitivity and warmth and understanding, understanding your own child and their individual differences. So you could have two kids who are very different from one another and have really different needs when it comes to autonomy support and kind of the how much and when and the timing of that, because you're trying to balance that with the warmth and sensitivity. And some kids just kind of need a little bit more of that nurturing for a little bit longer with each new skill that they're trying to develop than others. So one of the things that you just mentioned about timing, that speaks to something that comes up a lot, which is with siblings, you want to, you know, they, they want to get exactly like if one child had a privilege at age five, then the other one wants it at age five. When one child has a privilege, you know, at any point and someone's looking, they're looking for that as their marker, but it's not really about time. It's about individual responses to the actual child that you're dealing with is what you're saying, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you give some examples of, because I do think we say sensitive and warmth all the time, but sometimes that finding that balance between sensitive and warmth and the promoting a sense of self-reliance, autonomy, whatever you want to use. And I do also want to address what you said about Western culture versus other Mm -hmm. cultures, but how can we think of concrete examples of expressing sensitivity and warmth in the context of supporting autonomy? Because I think that holy grail is so easy to say in the research, but really hard in the moment when you're responding to your child. You just see so many times parents are like, ah, I I have to, I don't want to not show up for them. So how do I show up for them and also carve out space for them to fly? And Mm -hmm. I I think as specific as you can get, because it, what seems very obvious is not super obvious to parents. This is what I found. I found that I say these things all the time, but then, then if somebody gives me an example back, much of the time they're saying, well, I don't want to scar them for life because I wasn't there. And I'm, I think there's a real mm-hmm. confusion. Yeah. Well, I can give a couple of examples. So in our laboratory research, we use a, a task to measure autonomy support. And one of the reasons we use it is because it provides sort of a microscope on this dynamic that occurs between parent and child when they're engaged in joint problem solving. So we have them do a puzzle together for 10 minutes and the puzzle is a little bit too hard for the child to do on their own. So, you know, it's, it's a, a 20 piece puzzle for, an, uh, you know, like a, a toddler and you know, things <laughs> like that. And we ask parents just to, you know, kind of interact as you normally would with your child. It's the only instruction. And uh, if you, you know, finish the puzzle, then, you know, you can do it. You can do another one, choose another one to keep going for the 10 minutes. And what we see is it's, it's, it is a microcosm of what's happening in, in the relationship potentially more broadly, where there are individual differences in how much parents support the child's autonomy in that situation. So things like offering 
the choice of which puzzle to do. So you have an array, you can choose, um, you know, one of, of, of several puzzles. And does the parent offer the choice? Or does the parent grab one off the shelf and just start doing it? Does the parent kind of take over on the puzzle? and start, you know, building the perimeter first and, and kind of like, look and, and watch me do this. You know, I'll model this for you. I'll show you how to do this. And the child is really quite passive in this situation, just kind of watching. Or, you know, do they offer them, now it's your turn. Do they, do they foster and engage in that kind of like conversational turn-taking? Now it's your turn. Okay, now it'll be my turn. Or do they just kind of passively sit back and let the child do the whole thing? When it's this totally inappropriate puzzle. It's too hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too challenging. But some parents will, and I think this gets to your earlier point about how do you know when it's kind of just anything goes or when it's like not enough support or too kind of permissive. So we call that laissez-faire in this laissez-faire parenting in this coding mm-hmm. scheme. And, and uh, so you do see a subset of parents who don't help at all on the puzzle. And the child is really kind of flailing and struggling and, and getting stuck and not getting help. And sometimes the parent is on, the, on their phone while that's happening. So, you know, that's where you're seeing a lack of both the sensitivity and warmth and, you know, like this, well, it's sort of extreme autonomy where they're not, it, it's autonomy without the support. <laughs> so we're able to kind of sift through autonomy support versus controlling behaviors in the parent versus laissez-faire or kind of like two hands off. So as you can probably guess, I mean, we find that the most um, positive um, and beneficial outcomes are associated with that autonomy, supportive, kind of just right parenting style that's that's a blend of, of both letting them try things on their own and giving them the support, stepping in with some of that nurturing and warmth and support when they need it. Reading the emotional cues in their child. So if the child's starting to become frustrated or upset, kind of, you know, picking up on that and, you know, in a timely way, kind of, you know, addressing that and being nurturing. So, so we do see that blend in that example where a child starts to struggle and the parent can be at the same time, both nurturing and autonomy supportive by saying, you know, oh, I understand. I can see that you're starting to feel frustrated. Maybe we can narrow this down. So one thing they'll do is narrow down the problem space. So when you see all these pieces in front of you, it's overwhelming right? So they might say, oh, I can see you're feeling frustrated. How about if you choose between these two? And so they pull, you know, two that they can see could be options for, you know, the next piece to fit in this puzzle. How about, you know, you choose one of those and it reduces the problem space, makes it more manageable. It scaffolds the child kind of meeting them where they're at and doing it in a, in a warm and responsive and sensitive way. So that's one example. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about ZocDoc because finding and booking a doctor who's right for you doesn't need to be a bad experience. Will they take your insurance, understand your needs, or be available when you can actually show up to the appointment? With ZocDoc, the answer can be a refreshingly pain-free yes, indeed. And there are amazing doctors out there the only ones that really matter for you are the ones who actually take your insurance. And with ZocDoc, you can focus on doctors who are in network, putting you on the path to see the doctors who are right for you. No more wasting time hunting down Aunt Shirley's cash-only chiropractor or the dentist your coworker recommended who's out of your network. 
ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. It is a super straightforward, incredibly helpful app. In the chaotic world of healthcare, let ZocDoc be your trusted guide to find a quality doctor in a way that's surprisingly pain-free. Go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free and then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's zocdoccom slash humans, zocdoc.com slash humans. Start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's zocdoccom slash humans. I would love to give you another reaction mm-hmm. and see where this one would go. You're trying to scaffold the child, but they're shut down because they're so frustrated. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's when you would also see sensitivity and more because the parent would focus on getting them back to regulation before they address the puzzle again. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, and I'm not sure that this is in those videos, but Mm -hmm. these were videotaped, right? They were (laughs) only because I remember coding three bag tests, like I oh, feel yeah. like thousands of three baptists uh-huh. and just looking at something d- different because we were looking at more, you know, intrusiveness versus, I mean, similar, mm-hmm. but like the older version of this. And I just remember noticing that there were parents who were so on task, like you should finish this puzzle that their child being dysregulated was not like it worried them that like they're now not doing something right in the task. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't able to comfort the child because they were worried about getting the puzzle done or getting the child back to the puzzle. And I wonder if you see things like that and how you can pivot in that kind of scenario. Yeah, we do see that, especially if we put a little bit of pressure on the parent. So similar to the, you know, shoe tying on um, example, (laughs) tying shoes under time pressure. We have done this and this happened to be a a study with fathers. We wanted to look to see if we're seeing the same patterns with fathers as with mothers, because of course, most of this research has been with mothers. So we, we brought dads and their preschool, preschool child into a gym and there was like a slide and a tunnel and a climbing thing and something else. So we said, okay, the gym is yours, you know, the, for the two of you for the next 10 minutes. And there are four stations here. You can see the slide and so forth. So the only rule is that you have to make sure that you get to all four stations before I come back. So we videotape this. And, and once you introduce some, um, a little bit of time pressure and maybe a little bit of competition too, so the dads were trying to keep their child on task and they were really concerned with getting to all four stations. Oh, that's right? interesting. <laughs> and so now that you've imposed kind of this goal on the play, on the playtime, you know, many parents and, and some more so than others became pretty obsessed with meeting the goal instead of paying attention to what was going on with their child. And it introduced more of the controlling kind of parenting where they were, you know, suddenly kind of like they're checking their watch and they're like, okay, you know, I I can see that that's, that climbing structure is too hard for you. Let's move on to the next one. Instead of, you know, kind of sitting with that struggle and 
figuring out how to scaffold the child through that through that kind of struggle. So when stress, and we, we know stress is the enemy of executive function and quality parenting, when stress goes up, then parenting quality generally goes down and you become more instrumental. I mean, I do this too. I become we all more do. instrumental and like, you know, <laughs> we don't have time. We have time for this right now. So that is, yeah, one way that, again, that we've sort of upped the ante um, in the lab that draws out a little bit more of these controlling or kind of intrusive, intrusive behaviors. It is really interesting to me that there are distinct cultural differences that bend a little more controlling and intrusive in the name of all in the name of love. So this is not a like judgment. It's all in the name of love, but it does present as quite, well, to me, I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is like, there are certain cultural stereotypes from my family and community. Like I come from a Jewish family and intrusiveness is like part of the deal, but so is warmth, warmth and intrusiveness, like to an extent that if I were coding it, <laughs> I feel like I, I would be in my head as very extreme, but I so wonder if, and, and I would go as far as saying that there are certain, I can only say I can name the culture that I come, cultural background I come from so that it's not, I don't know, that feels like I can just make that observation, but I have been in settings where certain like group settings with parents, peer parents who are looking at different behaviors and some see things as intrusive and others see that intrusiveness as particularly good parenting, like Mm -hmm. A plus parenting, if you could grade parenting, which, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just think that's interesting because I, I guess I wonder what, what differences you see culturally. I wonder if within those cultures and communities, you see different outcomes because they're part, they're kind of in the water. And then my other curiosity is the findings about fathers versus mothers. If you found enough that you could attribute to fatherhood. Well, I think I can talk about the fathering quickly because we really found very few differences cool. between fathers and mothers in a Western American, you know, cultural setting. And the the associations were very similar in terms of greater autonomy, supportiveness being mm-hmm. associated with stronger executive function skills in those kids. They just do it differently, you know. Right. <laughs> That's actually a really important point because sometimes. Mm-hmm our impression of something is that it's not autonomy supportive or it is autonomy supportive or whatever intrusive because we have a view of how it looks. But so Mm -hmm. how does it look different? Mothers talk a lot more during these tasks. Uh, Uh They, they're, they talk a lot more and their supportiveness is more verbal and dad's supportiveness is more nonverbal. So dads will say a few words, but you know, nudge the, the the piece that the kid is looking for, for the puzzle, the dad might kind of nudge it a little closer to their field of vision. <laughs> That's so cool. And it really kind of maps 
to research when you look at just thinking about differences between mom and dad play, but all of these things kind of, it's a, it's not necessarily the approach. It's just the style of the approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's why we, we wanted to do the gym setting for the dads because we thought this would really draw out if you, you know, if you visit a playground and you see how dads are interacting with kids on a playground versus moms, yeah. there's a lot more physical risk-taking with yeah. dads. I couldn't and, go to the playground. I just sent dad. Cause yeah. I was like, <laughs> I will, I know myself and this will be no good for anyone. Right. It's like, you can't even look, you know, you no. can't, can't even bear to look. Yeah. And I remember that too, when my kids were learning how to swim, I just couldn't even look and when, if they were with my husband because... <laughs> I was like, they're going to drown. But he was willing to let them, you know, sink a little longer, a little longer than I was. So with respect to cultural differences, and one thing I'll say is that more controlling parents in this puzzle task within the, the American setting, their kids do learn how to do the puzzle faster. So... They're, they're literally showing them every step of the way what to do it. So it's more intrusive, like you said, it's more controlling. We'd score that as more controlling. But then we gave kids um, a similar puzzle to solve on their own afterward. And the ones who, were, who had a more controlling parenting actually learned how to do these kinds of puzzles faster. So that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. And, you know, I don't want to refer to, to relatively more controlling parenting as being like bad parenting or anything mm-hmm. like that. None of this is bad. None of this is bad. Parenting. No, it's not a judgment. It's just looking at these style right. or approaches. Or, and even the, the laissez-faire, you know, parent on the phone. I mean, mm-hmm. who hasn't done that when your kid is kind of like needing you for something? I mean, and, daily. And you're distracted by your phone. So yeah, I want to contextualize it though, that we all exhibit all three of these types of behaviors. It's just kind of the balance and the appropriateness, you know, in the setting and things like that. So, so learning how to do puzzles faster is a, is a good outcome, but it's at the expense or the cost of not learning how to manage these things on their, on their own, you know, down the line kind of, it's, it's a little bit of an investment now you know, early in childhood, an investment that they might not be as great at some of these, say, academic skills as peers who've had some stronger scaffolding or sort of intrusive support, but the benefits can be reaped down the line because they have greater uh, self-confidence, a sense of their own mastery and competence. They've struggled and they've known that they, that the struggle was in the context of loving support. And they're going to encounter those struggles and they're going to encounter those challenges again without a model at all, without uh, someone to say, oh, here, let me show you how to do it. And so it's, it's really, I think, starting to, to build those self-regulatory and confidence and, and kind of motivational skills to carry them into the future to say, I'm the kind of person who can face challenges and figure, figure things out. Now, with respect to culture, though, I do want to say that it's a bit of a misnomer that to think that parents, say, in an Eastern context, are not autonomy supportive by virtue of being more controlling, or that they would view autonomy as a bad thing. 
So it's a conflation between in thinking of autonomy as being synonymous with independence. Uh-huh. Thank you. This is great. Yeah. So in an interdependent society, which characterizes you know many Eastern societies and traditional societies, it's really important to foster interdependence and uh, you want children to kind of come into the fold and to carry on your cultural traditions and filial piety is, you know, very important respect for elders and trying to, to foster this sense of independence versus independence where the risk is that, you know, children will leave the fold or not take care of their aging parents. And one um, important point about autonomy that, that, DC and, and Ryan, who are um, some of the, the kind of original theoreticians who've really developed and uh, written broadly about this idea of autonomy and development. One thing they say about it is that it's not independence, it's self-rule in, in the sense of volitionally or, or sort of willfully choosing how to act. So that's really what we all want, regardless of the culture that we live in and are raising our children in, is for our children to be well adapted to their own culture, to be, to be well adapted, to become adults, and to do so willingly mm. from, from the heart. If they only do it because we tell them to, we haven't gained anything. And now a quick break so you can hear a little bit about Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth develops and crafts high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth so that you can get the restorative sleep you need to curate your sanctuary and recharge from the comfort of your home. Because sleep is everything. Sleep is so important. And Cozy Earth makes it easier to have a cozy sleep. It's softer than cotton. It's made from soft and sustainable viscose from bamboo fabrics. It's temperature regulating, which means it will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. And Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's favorite list four years in a row. Come on. Oprah's favorites means it's probably pretty awesome. There's also a 10-year warranty on all of their products. 100-night sleep test, which means that you can try it for 100 nights. And if you don't love it, you can send it right back for a full refund. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for my listeners today, 35% off site-wide, woo, 35% off site-wide when you use the code HUMANS. And Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's favorite list four years in a row. To get 35% off site-wide, just go to CozyEarth.com and use the code HUMANS. To get 35% off site-wide, just go to CozyEarth.com and use the code HUMANS, CozyEarth.com, code HUMANS. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsor, Talkspace. You know how I feel about mental health and supporting mental health, so it's pretty easy for me to share with you any opportunity to get high-quality support for your mental health. With 24-7 text, audio, and video messaging, Talkspace lets you talk to a licensed therapist without needing an appointment. They have thousands of therapists across dozens of specialties. And once you match with your therapist, 
You can message them anytime, anywhere with appropriate boundaries that they put in place. Talkspace is private, secure, and most importantly, accessible. It's everything you love about therapy without the stuff that gets in the way. And nowadays, it is so hard to find high-quality licensed therapists. There is a real need in this space, and Talkspace is a place that found a solution. So if thoughts and emotions are piling up and a fresh perspective is what you need to feel better, match with your dedicated therapist today at Talkspace.com and use the promo code HUMANS during signup to get $100 off your first month. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code HUMANS. Match with your dedicated therapist today at Talkspace.com and use the promo code HUMANS during signup to get $100 off your first month. It's reminding me of the high number of Amish children who go away and choose to come back. I don't know if that is remotely analogous, but... Yes, and in fact, I was thinking of that. My very first research study was a study of Mennonites. Oh, really? Yes. And I went to Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania, and I was fascinated by the Amish um, Mennonites in the region. And I was really interested in the children in this culture and in pretend play in particular. Um, And uh, so I did my honors thesis on Amish Mennonite uh, children. Go figure. And I did the participant observer anthropological method where I spent six months uh, with them. And it was really, really fascinating. But I learned, I learned so much about this. And I, to me, the biggest lesson that I learned from the Mennonites was that there is freedom with limits. There's such a sense of relief and a sense of freedom that comes with limits. And you point out a great analogy where the, so the Ordnung is the, the book of, of rules and, and, and laws, and the Ordnung can vary from village to village. And there are you know, very particular things that you know, one village will allow a windshield on the buggies and another village will not allow a windshield on the buggies. And so the child rearing in this culture, it is rather controlling, right? And there are strong expectations of children's um, self-regulation behavior. And these are externally regulated to a large degree. Corporal punishment, for example, is a real thing. But what you want them to do is ultimately to choose to stay in the fold. And in order to do that, you have to give some autonomy. And then so they sort of famously have this period of Mm -hmm. in adolescence of, of looking the other way while the adolescent might try out the English life. And uh, 80% do come back. I think that's mind-blowing. Yeah. So using this great lesson that you got from that experience of the freedom in limits, how do you reconcile that in the context of general child rearing? How can you reconcile that using this idea of the freedom in limits? Because I think that could be so helpful as people try to come to terms with those ideas? Well, one thing that we've learned in our research is that 
when we break down the actual behaviors that we're looking at when we when we talk about autonomy support, it includes like this verbal scaffolding. It includes arranging the the task so that uh, the, so that the child can master it. So it's kind of like what we call scaffolding. And then the third piece is offering choice and following the child's pace. And I had this hunch. So I'd been really thinking about these freedom within limits and, and how offering choice is, it's gotta be really essential for how we get from autonomy support to executive function skills. You know, so we've, we've replicated this association again and again and again, but what's the mechanism? You know, we always ask, what's the mechanism? How, how is it that you get from autonomy support to executive, executive function skills? And I had this hunch that it really is about having choices because when you have a choice, you have control and you get a chance to exercise that control and you have to live with the choice. So let's say it doesn't turn out so well. If it was your choice, it's a heck of a lot easier to regulate your emotions than if it was somebody else's choice that didn't turn out so well. Kids can't control their thoughts, actions, and feelings, which is really what we're talking about with executive function skills. They can't control their thoughts, actions, and feelings unless they first know that they have a choice in how to think, act, or feel. Right. And so when parents give kids opportunities to make choices on the little things, like you'd want to, you know, do you want to do this puzzle piece or that puzzle piece, or do you want this for breakfast or that for breakfast? That kids get to feel in control, like, oh, you're offering me a choice. It's my choice. I get to choose. Hmm, I, I choose that one, right? And the feeling of, of confidence that, you know, comes with that is really a powerful thing. So we went back and we looked at all of our data for, we co- collapsed the data across all these studies on autonomy support and executive function including the mothers and the fathers and even lab studies, but also homeless and highly mobile families. And regardless of which population it was, what was most predictive of kids' executive function skills, when you break autonomy support down into its, its different parts, it was offering choices. So we found that the most predictive aspect of autonomy supportive parenting for executive function skills in their kids was offering choice. And when we sort of pitted that against the other aspects of autonomy support, it won out. And so I think there really is something fundamentally important about having choices, making choices, being provided with choices that helps kids develop these self-control skills that they'll need for so many other things in the rest of their lives. One of the reasons that the, the Mennonite experience was so powerful for me was because I was at a point in life graduating from college where, you know, the world was my oyster, right? As that expression goes, that was a huge responsibility and a huge kind of overwhelming sensation of there being so many choices and so many options that were limitless and therefore kind of terrifying. And so I saw that there could be some some comfort in having um, fewer choices, <laughs> fewer options. And, you know, I obviously wanted, um, you know, for myself and my kids to have 
options for higher education and things like that, that were not promoted in that culture. But this has led to a new line of research in my lab and I'm really excited about it. We're, we're looking at how young children think about and feel about choices. And we're you can have uh, sort of this sense of, well, you know, toddlers start to be willful and starting to kind of want to have um, some say in things. And they'll uh, let you know very clearly if, if they're not happy with, with not having the, their own say over things through tantrums and things like that. So we decided to focus on toddlers and no one has really ever documented whether, when, and how much kids prefer having choices over not having choice or, and no one has, has documented or looked at how many options is the right number of options, say at a given age. Do kids experience choice overload the same way that adults experience choice overload when there are too many options? So we're, we've embarked on a new line of research in my lab addressing all of those questions. I'm really excited about it. What are some tools that you've created that parents can access and teachers and caregivers that will help promote executive function skills and this particular topic we talked about, autonomy support. Parents and teachers, educators uh, can go to our website, reflectionsciences.com and find um, several resources. We have a blog about executive function and autonomy support and choice and things like this. We also have um, some activity guides for uh, things that you can do at home to help develop executive function skills in children through second grade. And we also have ways of measuring executive function skills through our measurement tool uh, called EFGO. And there are are also things that teachers can can do, strategies that they can use to help measure and improve executive function skills in students. You can reference it. There's also a free 30-minute course geared toward parents on executive oh function. Oh my God, that's bananas. Love that. I love that. <laughs> 